Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Podcast. We appreciate y'all being here and supporting it. We do. Again, uh, guest suggestions, contact doctor.com. Don't forget After Dark. Don't forget that streaming show. You guys would, uh, this is a group that would definitely like that. I was talking to somebody today and I said, you know, I really feel like we're the center of the French underground trying to make sense of everything there. It's three o'clock, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at drdrew.tv. Today, my guest is Amy Apigian. Uh, Amy is a former foster mom, adoptive mom, general surgery resident, uh, certified, board certified in preventative medicine, addiction medicine. She has a master's in biochemistry and public health, and she is uh, straddling the worlds of functional medicine, neuroscience, and trauma. And those are my jams. So uh, you can follow her Instagram and uh, YouTube. Also, the website is traumahealingaccelerated.com. And uh, Instagram is Dr. Amy, A-I-M-I-E, as is Facebook. And let's see, X, are you on X, Amy? No. No, okay, good. You're with Facebook and Instagram for now. Yeah, you're interested in healing trauma, and X, and X is not the place. <laughs> not <laughs> my, not my place. <laughs> That's trauma central, man. Uh, so uh, did you finish a surgical residency? These, I'm just, you know, obviously – Going from surgery to addiction medicine to preventative medicine, those those are not normal pathways, right? You would know. Yes, yes, those are not normal pathways. No, I did not finish the surgery residency. That was when I got very sick. Oh. And when I had to take a medical leave, when I came back from my medical leave, I had already started my own trauma work. And I realized that, ah, like I couldn't actually support my health, support my body and stay in that um, environment with those, with those hours, the, the on-call every third night was really rough for my body. So that was when I, yeah, I had, I had some deep soul searching to be like, well, then who am I, who am I and what do I do now? And you have to be one of those people that doesn't need nor like sleep. You just don't need it. The the surgical residents often don't need it. And you got to be around uh, a certain personality type all the time, which is speaking of trauma. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of trauma, it can be rather traumatizing. So, so was it your own trauma healing journey that got you into this? Originally, no, Dr. Drew. So I adopted during medical school. And so it was just coming out of my master's in biochemistry. I had several months there where I kind of had this free space before I jumped back into the third year of medical school. And I decided to become a foster parent. I had no intentions of adopting at that time. Mm. And it was just as I was going into the internal medicine rotation for the third year of medical school that I got the call and they had Miguel for me. And Miguel was four years old and this was his history. And he had failed out of so many other placements. He had had over 20 transfers at that point. Oh my God, at age four. Can you imagine? By age four. Yeah. And he had been God. in the foster care system um, at age nine or nine months. And so it was, uh, I mean, I, I wasn't in the place where I was going to say no. So I, I said yes. And then it was a few months into it where I realized kind of what, what his story would be, what his life would be like if I did not adopt him after all that he had been through. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Dr. Drew, even though I knew that I was not the best choice, I mean, I'm a medical student, mm-hmm. I'm a medical student. Wow. I, I, I knew Crazy. I was not the best choice, but I, I knew that I was his best chance. Mm-hmm. And so I made that decision and it totally changed my life and obviously my career as well. Mm-mm. How's he doing now? So part of our story is that I had him for six years and it was during surgery residency that it became unmanageable for me oh. after he had an amazing healing experience. And so for six years, I 
continue to try different things. I tried everything and first started with kind of what the conventional approaches was. Of course, being in medical school, I knew about all the evidence-based treatments. So of course, that's where I started first. Those actually did not help, but actually made him worse. At least the behaviors worse. And I felt like I was running a a child psych unit in my home. And then I became open to other things because obviously what I was doing was not working. And so then that took us several more years. Part of the problem, Dr. Drew, was that with me not knowing about trauma and attachment and mm-hmm. polyvagal theory and all of this mm-hmm. stuff I know now, before I got him, I started wrong and mm. I started trying to help him trust me by being his friend. Oh. And I, I've since learned that that's actually not how you help a traumatized child trust you. Uh, but I didn't know that back then. Like, that's literally what I thought. I thought that my love would be enough. I thought that time mm. would be enough. Common the thing. stability would be enough. Right. And, and so to, to have to learn all that through experience. Um, and so started just pulling in different pieces. And there was one week where I pulled in one last piece. And for him, that was, that was the missing piece for him. And he had just the most amazing transformation. We had the most amazing relationship, the relationship that I'd always wanted to have with him. And then being a single mom in general surgery residency, I brought him home from the school where I had him. And it just became so unmanageable for me to try to figure out care and school and who watches him while I'm on call. And I don't know when I'm on call. I don't know if I'm going in. Yeah. It, it became... I mean, what I had wanted to provide him was stability and, and my life was unstable at that point for him. And so by that point, I had actually started a nonprofit working with other adoptive families, teaching them what I had learned along the way. And there was a family that had come several times to these weekend family camps that I had started in Portland, Oregon area. And they had adopted two children also from the foster care system. They were doing really well with their kids and had even started to talk about wanting to adopt another child. So I met with them because I knew them well. I knew the parents. I knew their home life. I, I, I had trained them like I knew them. And so I felt like he would have the best chance with them for the rest of his childhood. So that was that that that's been our story is I had him for six years and then he he got to have another family that uh, had a mom and a dad and siblings for the rest of his childhood. Mm-hmm. Let's take me now through your understanding of trauma journey because I'm, I'm it's you you've already tilted at a couple of neurobiological processes that suggest a certain well I may turn over all my cards so I, I've been lo- living in the world of uh, interpersonal neurobiology for like 20 years right and so Stephen Porges and the polyvagal theory when I came upon that I went ah this is a piece this is a piece I've been missing this piece Uh, I started kind of with Alan Shore and his stuff and was like, oh, my God. Uh, And then Dan Siegel's a hero of mine, and he's a very big uh, attachment sort of psychiatrist. And so this is a world that it's interesting to me also that you found your way to addiction, because I don't know how you do addiction. Doing either trauma either leads you towards addiction or addiction leads you towards trauma because they are overlapping all the time these days. So tell me about your journey. Well, with actually, you were a big resource for me, Dr. Drew. So I appreciate this opportunity to thank you in, in uh, live here, where when I was transitioning out of surgery and realizing that my most meaningful work had been with attachment and attachment trauma and working with these families and seeing 
seeing the the healing happen between these relationships and the difference that it made for these kids. And I mean, just that, like I, I, I could go into so much more on what I actually saw happening physically in these children as they started to feel safe and trust their adoptive parents. And when I realized that I could no longer stay in surgery and that had been my most meaningful work, then it was like, okay, well, that's what I want to do. But how do I do that within the context of medicine? Because there is no field in medicine of trauma per se, unless you want to go into psychiatry. Right. <laughs> and well, I mean, there, there kind of is, there's an internet, I mean, maybe, you know, now there's an international society of traumatology yeah. uh, and uh, Vanderkoek was sort of been the head of that organization for a while. Uh, but keep going, keep going. So you didn't know about it anyway. I didn't, I didn't know about it at that time. And so what, what I knew was that I wanted, I was starting to see attachment and trauma in all of my patients in surgery. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I realized that this is something that is so connected. Like we, we can't separate it. And somehow I wanted to bring trauma into medicine and medicine and what I was learning, especially now as I was learning functional medicine more for myself, functional medicine into trauma therapy, because for me, those worlds intersected so much. And I saw how those worlds intersected in the kids, the adoptive kids that I was working with. And so that was my decision to somehow merge those two worlds. Now you are right that as I was working with these adopted children, including Miguel, the connection between this dysregulation of the nervous system, which, you know, kind of is a, is a, big principle for me of defining trauma and stored trauma in the body, that dysregulation seemed to be lending itself toward addictive behaviors and addictive patterns, addictive personalities. And so even in Miguel, as early as five years old, I was like, oh my goodness, like I can see him, I can see him becoming a, an addict to something like that's, that's just true. his drive. And so for me, it seemed like a very natural fit to be able to find something where I knew that I could get a job if I couldn't figure this other piece out. And I, I could be very happy in addiction medicine because I'm, I'm working with what, with what I love. And so my decision to move into preventive medicine was largely based on the work of you know, uh, Dr. Filetti and Dr. Onda with the adverse child experiences. They had done all of their work in the preventive medicine department. So I thought for sure, right. Preventive medicine might be the place where they would be more accepting of me trying to bring trauma into medicine. And then the addiction piece was just the the natural next step for me to really be able to make it practical mm -hmm. and make sure that I had a paying job uh, for the rest of my life. Mm. And and so you leaped, leapt into it. How's it been? It, I did. I, I jumped into it. And so <laughs> I, I came back down to Loma Linda University. And that's actually when I started to attend Dr. Alan Shore's study groups. Mm -hmm. And so I just kind of started to surround myself. I want to say resource myself, resource myself. You, you, went from, you went all the way from, you went all the way from San Bernardino to UCLA. Oh yeah. Cases. Oh, that's, oh, that's, oh yeah. That's crazy. I'm, I was dedicated to resident, surgical resident. That, <laughs> that seemed easy compared to surgical residency. I'm sure. So there you go. Yeah. And it, it really was, uh, for me, I had never really been part of a group where there were other professionals studying this. And so for me, it just started to feed my soul of, you know, just the camaraderie and being able to talk about these things and hear how others were applying it. Of course, that group at that time was, uh, really all therapists. And so I'm the only physician yeah. And, um, but, but still starting to, to piece things together. And from there, I went into addiction medicine 
and I started working in a methadone clinic. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I did that for two years and then moved into running a 20 bed medical detox unit. We took over the third floor of a hospital. And so these were patients who the idea was that they had some medical comorbidities and were detoxing off of something, something being whether alcohol, heroin, fentanyl, or prescription drugs, benzodiazepines, narcotics, and just that complication with having a medical health condition and needing to navigate that. So I did that for two years. And then from there, I'm going to stop you before you go from there, but uh, you know, a unit like that, um, I learned early on that the, key to running a good unit was a quality team around you. So I guess you learned that there. So, and, and the nature of the team changes in a medical detox unit versus a rehab unit and stuff. So whom did you surround yourself with at that point? I was the only physician running that detox. That's okay. You don't need more doctors. (laughs) I don't need more doctors, but the, the, the team of nurses that I yeah, had were key. amazing. Yeah, nursing is key at that stage. Yeah. But you amazing. also do need, you need some sort of chemical dependency counselor or somebody in recovery, somebody kind of yeah. making the rounds a little bit, trying to enroll people. Did you have that kind yeah. of thing too? Yeah. Yeah. So what I did was I met every day with all 20 patients, of course, yeah. and there was always a nurse with me and the chemical dependency counselor. Oh, there you go. Okay. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And, and so from and there, there we who were, those people are make, you know, they're more to do with the quality of the program than you or I, frankly. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just there for the detox, yeah. right? Yeah. They're there to make sure that they're taking that next step to where yep. the change will really happen yep. so that they don't fall back into that same place. If you'd like marketing made simple, Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze your online marketing campaign. Makes it easy for you to show up exactly the way you want to. You can customize everything. Brainstorm, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind many brands you know. We love Shopify. We use it wherever we can. It really helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. From the launch your online shop stage to first real life store stage all the way, Shopify is there to help you grow. Plus, Shopify has their award-winning help there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses grow, they grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Drew. It's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash D-R-E-W now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Drew. Did you apply at that stage? Could you apply any of the stuff you were learning about attachment and uh, emotional regulation? What I started to apply was a lot of the regulation pieces around bringing in safety. And of course, that's the polyvagal theory as well, right? Like we have to start with safety. And so I became a little obsessive, Dr. Drew, about making sure that that the environment, so I was having them come into my space rather than me going into their bedroom. I, I wanted to, to get them out of their room I get it. and the space where I had them come then to meet every day, I became so obsessive about having cues of safety. Yeah. 
even down to like where they sat and where I was sitting yeah. and where is the natural light coming in. Yeah. And I mean, just everything to promote that sense of regulation and safety, knowing that during a detox, like, you know, this Dr. Jude, They're during detox, yeah. their system is as dysregulated poly as it will ever be because That's they were right. using those substances to help them have some sense of regulation. And so knowing just that this is a really, uh, I want to say like, Mm, reactive time for their system. Like anything can set them off and you don't even need to know what it is. They don't, yep. they don't even know what it is sometimes. Right. And so knowing that I needed to not just remove threats, but actually provide cues of safety. Uh, there would be times when I would, I would also rely a lot on touch. And so I was very conscientious about making sure that I put my hand on their shoulder. If, if that seemed like they were be uh, open to that, right? Like there were some systems where they're in the middle of the detox and and touch was so sensitive for them. And so that was not the thing to do, but mm -hmm. bringing, just bringing in things that help the, the regulation weight, right? So weighted blankets, these are things that maybe many people don't think about, but can make a big difference for a system that feels like it's out of control and spiraling out of control. And you just provided that sense of containment and to be able to bring those tools into a detox really help the detox process itself. I I had a little uh, maybe a delusion <laughs> that I that my so what happens let me tell you what happened to me over the years in in that role, which is I'd I'd always as you say you always bring somebody with you when you deal with addicts I, I've said for years that that the plant and the little shop of horrors you know the Audrey two is a perfect model for addiction because it, you know feed me Seymour it will suck you in left by yourself it's an interpersonal disorder and it, it it's uncanny how it will suck you in even when you know lots about it and so i always had some and i tried to have recovering people around me uh when i was working with the early part of the the process and <laughs> I, i'm just wondering if you had this experience i would uh do all that stuff you're talking about and, and i would also um I went a little bit further as time went on and I got kind of good at, and I'm, by the way, my own therapy, I had, to, you know, you have to have a clean instrument. I'm guessing you did a lot of sort of attachment stuff, work yourself, trauma therapy, right? Yeah. You're nodding your head. Yes, yeah. very much so. We can talk about what it's like to be a patient in that context too. It's kind of amazing. Um, but it, what allows you to be highly, highly, highly attuned to people that are dysregulated. Right. Exactly. And I, I developed a little model in my head, which was, you know, we're asking them to go enter a frame with a sponsor and their peers and these, they, you know, distrust, inability to tolerate closeness. This is a feature of every patient uh, and, and desire to do drugs. Uh, and so I would sort of feel like, you know, this is an opportunity to, to model that so they can then understand there is safety, there is closeness, and then they can translate that out into the, into their recovery world. So I'm guessing you eventually developed that kind of a strategy. Yes. Yes. And you know, I'm trained in somatic experiencing. And so that was one of the things that I started to introduce again, like you're saying to model it, Yes. Because how, how are they going to learn it? Well, not only so, that, how, how far are you going to get when somebody's in withdrawal and stuff? You know what I mean? You're just sort of trying to expose them and get, get them in the game a little bit. Right. But, but, yes. but, but before you go on with that, I just want to make the one point, which was like, very frequently I would do my thing and, uh, a, you know, a heroin addict chemi chemical dependency counselor, you know, with 20 years of sobriety and working in the field forever. I'd go, God, that, you know, I'd walk out of the room and go, God, what? is she really, she really, I think she was 
open in a way that that probably is unique for her. And I felt a lot of, you know, sort of uh, connection and I was attuned and he goes, they'll say things often would say to me like, yeah, yeah, she wants drugs. <laughs> she, she wants drugs. She sees a big sign over your head and she'll cooperate with you. But trust me in 10 minutes, she'll be at the window. She wants your, she wants drugs from you. And uh, damn it. They were always right. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's the thing with this disease. That's why you have to have recovering people around you for one thing, because it's uncanny how it kind of operates, but it's, it's, you're in it with somebody and even in, and of course they're not aware how the disease is affecting them. So it's very, you know what I mean? It, it, they, they, they don't know what is bullshit and what isn't anymore. So it becomes hard for us as a caretaker. Now I would argue that one of the skills we have to develop is seeing, trying to find the reality, find the truth. And I was able to do so a lot of the time. Also a lot of the time they just want to drugs. So did you have that experience? 100%. Yeah. yeah. And for me, that was, I mean, that became my school, right? Cause I'm still studying this thing called the nervous system. Yeah. I'm still, I'm still, I'm, I'm using them as ways for me to just get more understanding. Mm-hmm. And so the, the more times that I would have that big misattunement, like you're talking about where, no, I was sure that we had this connection. I was it's not I a was misattunement. Sure. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an attunement that is being like, like I always tell people, the disease uses everything, right? Everything. It uses everything. everything. And so it uses good things too. And it's, and it yes. gets hold of this and starts to use it. And so, well, okay, there we are. And you can't be aware of it because you're focusing on the attunement. That's why you got to have another person there. Yeah. And, and there, I mean, there are stories that I can remember were kind of similar to you where I, I thought that they were with me <laughs> and then 10 minutes it's later, funny. they're signing themselves out AMA against medical <laughs> advice because they're wanting okay. to discharge. And- I love working with addicts. I love it. They're so, <laughs> I mean, I know that's very desperate circumstance, but they're, it's such humor in this disease. You know, there's so much to laugh about. That's why, you know, in, in, this is what people don't understand, you know, in, in program, you know, in meeting rooms, it's funny, man. Horrible things are talked about and laughed about. And laughed about. Yeah. yeah. And for me, it was, I mean, it was such an invaluable experience because I also learned in the process how to care and mm. yet not be taken in, not. And, and, and also not be, in. not be uh, affronted by the illness. Our peers, exactly. our peers, particularly on the psychiatric side and psychology side, get angry when the patients lie or manipulate it's like no that's right. their condition that's exactly. what we are tasked to manage that's not their exactly. fault that's their disease state it's weird yes. when people when and peers do that when when we expect that right like we expect yes. there to be lies we expect there to be some self-sabotage we we expect there to be some uh, manipulation like, manipulation yeah. and control we expect yeah, yeah. that and so when it happens i don't take it personal no. i'm not interested and I, I don't lose my energy. My energy is not drained by that. And and many people ask me that, like they say, oh, I could never do that. Like it would just wipe me out. And how do you maintain your boundaries? And I'm like, I enjoyed it. Like I really, yes. truly enjoy these people. Yes. I enjoy the lessons that I learn about myself while watching them. And for me, that was also where I got to develop a, a good understanding of the different parts of us. And so internal family systems. And even being able to bring that into the conversation with these yeah. patients of, oh, that's a part of you that wants that, but there is another part of you that wants this other thing. And yes. I wonder which part of you is going to win this argument, right? Oh yeah. It's the part that wants the drug. Okay. Well, you know, hopefully I'll see you. I'll see you next time. And 
We'll try this there, again. There's a great book you might uh, enjoy called by Stephen A. Mitchell called Object Relation Theory and no Object Relations and Psychoanalytic Theory. Uh, and it's a it's a nice romp through the history of what you're talking about. You know how object relations and introjects and how we came to understand these is really a good book. So I'm recommending that to you. It's, it's it'll it'll flush out some of what you're doing. Um, yeah. It, tell me more about the somatic processing, because is that something you had that helped you and that you're translating it for the page? Yeah. Yeah. So I started my somatic interest when I was working with the adopted children. And that's when I became exposed to Peter Levine and his work. And I watched I watched the famous video on YouTube of the polar bear. And I could his book, I, just, we got, his book is Waking the Waking the Tiger. Waking that's, the Tiger is book. one of them. And and so when I came back to Loma Linda to uh, go through the preventive medicine residency. That's when I also started my somatic experiencing training. And so I was going down to San Diego for the various days for two years to do that training. And what I was learning in the process was so helpful to myself. I did not, I did not realize how disconnected I was from my body. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that my ability to push myself that hard was actually just a uh, indirect relationship to how disconnected I was from myself and, and my and, body. And Alan Shore had a, had a concept he developed called somatoform dissociation. Yeah. That he early on uh, it connected to the vagus nerve before yep. Porges really was uh, a lot, you know, really mainstream, uh, which is interesting. He, he was, you know, the vagus has three different nuclei it, it, it comes from, right? You're, I'm sure you're aware of all this stuff. And, and the there's one that's sort of postnatally developing, or at least later in life that gets really sort of integrated with the system. And if you're traumatized, that's just, that piece doesn't quite develop and body becomes a sort of a source of disorganized, painful, chaotic, unpleasant information that's not integrated with your nervous system. So keep going. Which was fascinating for me to learn that about myself because here I considered, and I was, am a very high functioning person. I mean, I've been through medical school. I have two master's degrees. (laughs) And so it was such a huge realization for me to see, to learn this piece about the nervous system Mm. that coming to this new definition of, of trauma, how I could have trauma. And yet I would not have necessarily said that my childhood was super traumatic. I don't have necessarily these big events like other people do. And so to realize that, oh, wait a second, we're, we're not talking about events in the past. We're just talking about the patterns of the vagus nerve of that autonomic nervous system. What are the patterns of dysregulation? That's how we can see this stuff. And and doesn't it give you some humility? Because I'm similar. I I had probably a little bit more trauma than you, but it gives you some humility in the face of these people who are struggling with severe, profound trauma, profound. Yeah. It, it it puts me, I would say, just in so much more awe of the human body, yeah. what it is able to survive, mm. how it's able to figure out how to keep going, and it disconnects to keep going, but uh, to be able to to just be a witness to how much the human body is able to do unconsciously mm-hmm. was was a, a beautiful insight for me, and so for me as a physician. I feel like I've really been able to step into what I, I wanted to be able to do when I decided to go into medical school, which was really work with the human body. And I feel like somatic work, somatic experiencing, and I've, I've done some other somatic trainings, not just somatic experiencing, 
but the somatic work has allowed, given me the, the, the tools, the understanding of this side of the human body that I, that I missed in medical school and has allowed me to really work with someone's body, work with someone's nervous system and shift it better to a place of health. And, and at the same time, you have great expertise with, you know, I'm sure the, what what neuropharmacological mechanisms and, and, and things we have at our disposal, both in terms of detox and the effects of the drugs, and the effect of the post-acute withdrawal and the effects of the brain damage and whatever else we're into from these substances. That is really an important piece. Do you have a psychiatrist that works with you or do you feel confident in sort of doing all that pretty much on your own? So I've transitioned since then. So I actually no longer work running the detox unit. Mm. I transitioned to all online courses, Mm. teaching people around this concept of the biology of trauma and how much the biology affects one's regulation. Again, just like you're talking about Dr. Drew, like that, the pharmacology piece really imprinted deep into my brain of we can't neglect that. We can't just focus on somatic work. We can't just do therapy. We can't just do those things because the biology is really what's also helping to create the regulation. And we can either be having a biology that promotes regulation or have a biology that keeps us stuck in dysregulation. And it, it doesn't matter how much other therapy you do or what forms of therapy we've got, we've got to look at the biology that's driving and keeping people stuck in dysregulation. Is there a spiritual piece uh, to what you're doing? And and how does that integrate? It's always been mysterious for me, but I'm wondering how you incorporate that all in. Yeah. And I appreciate you asking because that is for me, like the, the element lately where I'm not sure how to practically bring in the spiritual element without turning some people away. I don't, know, I don't know how to do that either. It's, 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 it's odd. All I know, all I know is that it's important to get, to have some concept of being able to let con- control, let go exactly, uh, and let something take over or be more yes. important than you or something non-egocentric. That's just an important thing. And in order to do that, you need safe, you need the connected environment, but you also need some, some concept of faith, at least faith that the world won't come to an end or something. You've experienced that too. Well, and isn't that still safety, right? Isn't oh, yes. Faith yes, yes. Actually feeling safe with yes. a power greater than ourselves. Yeah. Yes. I, I can trust them that they have a process. I can trust in the process. I don't have to control everything. Yes, And so that language is language that I bring into the work without making it be confrontational for people. But just this idea of we don't have to control the process. Like there, there is something, someone, something bigger than us and they are with us. Yeah, no, that's the way I I present it to is around issues of control and safety. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Of course, I think you all know, I'm a, everyone knows I'm a fan of therapy and mental health services. They work. And now with BetterHelp, there's no longer any reason not to. I mean, people over the years have told me about stigma and they get embarrassed. Uh, not with BetterHelp. It's all there. And of course, it's the holiday season. Everyone knows that people are more prone to anxiety and depression, all sorts of symptomatology. Uh, and therapy could benefit you. I've sent family, patients, friends to BetterHelp, and I've been very pleased with the 
therapeutic processes and the professionals provided there. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Find your bright spot this season with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. The news. It's always happening. And then afterward, there's always some more of it. Wild how that works. I'm Cody Johnston. And I'm Katie Stoll, and we are the hosts of Some More News and Even More News, the very first podcasts anyone has ever made about the news. Every Wednesday on Some More News, we do a deep dive into a major news topic like corporate lobbying, why housing is so expensive, or Elon Musk's many, many insecurities. And then on Fridays, we're back for even more news to discuss the most infuriating, bizarre, and bizarrely infuriating news of the week. Check out some more news at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or the other ones, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm wondering if um, in your work with Alan Shore, you you ever heard him talk about trauma-associated dead spots. Have you ever heard him talk about that? We did not cover that in when I was attending the study groups. Because he, he, I experienced that rather vividly with my uh, own therapy. Um, I had a really highly attuned therapist who was practicing what you and I practice for sure. And to be an object of that kind of scrutiny is deeply meaningful, right? And what started happening to me in the course of my therapy years um, I got to the point where I could sort of fall into these like fugue states. Uh, it was odd. Uh, they were like, was like uh, and, that, and I was listening to a lot of Alan Shore at the time. And uh, he was talking about dead spots. And I thought, oh, that's what this is. And from my perspective, God only knows if it's accurate, but uh, it, it seemed to me that that was the source of my, a, a big source of my anxiety and panic. The trying to avoid and regulate and, and, you know, this, this, this death, it was like a death spot. I don't know why that was my version of the dissociative mechanisms that, that kicked in during my own personal trauma. But what started happening is I started going more flexibly in and out of those states in, in the, in the therapeutic context. And they just sort of filled in and my anxiety disorder reduced dramatically in response to that. Isn't that kind of interesting? I, I mean, I found the same thing. So what I started to experience in the somatic training, so I'm, I'm in the training and I would notice that like something would just be said or something would happen while we were practicing the exercises. And it's like, my body would just go, go. And, yeah. and, and my, I, I would just immediately feel all of my energy drain and, and, it was like, what, what just happened? Like I, I had energy a minute ago and then all of a sudden now I am so heavy and I'm so drained. My mind is, is gone. Like it it cannot focus on anything right now. And I would get stuck there. And what I learned to do and what they helped me to do was to be able to just wait it out. And eventually my body would come out of it. The first time it took like 25 minutes of me just like sitting in the chair, slouched over not even feeling like I had the energy to lift my head, definitely not look in anybody's eyes. It was the weirdest thing for me as a yeah, physician yeah, who's usually so objective. 
<laughs> yeah, listen, I, 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 the first time it happened to me, I was, it was probably 15 minutes into a session. And the next thing I knew, right? like, there was time compression too. My yes. therapist goes, that's our time. And I was like, ah! <laughs> it's like, what, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. where, where did that time go? Yeah. yeah. And same thing happened with me that actually the more that I was able to kind of be with that and, yeah. and stay with it rather than fight it. Like I recognized that I had always fought, like you talk about, like trying to avoid that dead space, trying to yeah. avoid it at all costs. Yes. And the more that I was able to be okay with it, the less strong it became. And then my body was able to kind of go, go in and go out and it became much more flexible. So that's actually one of the terms that I talk about now for the progression of the healing journey is that our system, our nervous system becomes more flexible rather than rigid. And yeah. no, I, I can't go to that place and I have yeah. to do everything, whether it's substances or caffeine or movies or exercise or whatever yeah. it is to yeah. avoid that space mm. um, because it's so uncomfortable for us. It does feel like, um, at least for me and what many, many people describe, it does feel like you're on the edge of death. Like you, you, you don't know what's in that space. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you have the experience of sort of falling? It felt like a falling into. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly how weird. I describe it. It yeah. felt like I was falling backwards yeah. and it's almost like I was trying to grab onto anything and everything before. And then when I just let myself, okay, I guess I'm falling. Yeah. Um, that's, that's when things started to shift for me, but I never would have been able to do that by myself, Dr. Drew, right? Like no, it was no. such a scary place yep. that I am so thankful for my somatic therapist at that time who was able to know what was happening and to just be like, it's okay. Like, I'm going to stay right here and I'll be here when you come back. <laughs> I, 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 I have said this to a many, 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 probably thousands of patients that you, you can't do this alone. You, we that something about our brain requires a satellite central nervous system there with us for it's this almost like a tether to the present moment mm. right because it's like i don't know how far back i'm falling mm. i don't i need to make sure that that if i go too far or that if i can't come back that they'll be able to bring me back at least that's how it felt like for me to have I think though, a witness I, I think though there is something about that person staying attuned alongside of you while you do it yes is the necessary ingredient it's, it's that that other nervous system there helping you not panic and regulate and tolerate the intolerable and the, you just we just can't do it on our own we don't do it it's just not not something that our brain is set up to do because it's too it's too close to destruction you know and and we are wired to fight that off and it and it's the mechanisms that kicked in during that kind of threat early on when our systems were developing. You have no idea what that was for you, though, huh? About, oh, now I now I do. Like now I have a lot more understanding. Hmm. And for me, that's that's the continual process, right? Like, it's like my goal is still to learn one new thing about my nervous system every day. Hmm. And wow. and so to to just um, what I started to recognize was what happened immediately before then. And that's when I started to learn about my eye movements, which was fascinating to me. And I recognized that when I was in a position where I was looking up to somebody, both physically and kind of like in a respectful way, where I, I respected their opinion of me, uh, like my, you know, like my, my positions as a resident. And so I'm looking up to them and there's some kind of disapproval. There's some kind of like a, Amy, you're not good enough. You fucked it up once again. Uh, at least that was what I heard, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, probably in surgery, that's what they would have said. 
Mm. Um, then that was when I noticed that my eyes went over to the left and down. And that was my moment when, when I escaped. And I found that so fascinating because then I started to just play around with my eye movements and I realized, oh my goodness, you're right. That when my eyes move to the side and down, that is my shame place. Mm. And that shame place for me is so intolerable that I, it, it takes me into this dead space where it, it feels like I'm falling. It feels like I'm, I'm falling. Yeah. And, and obviously eye movements, you know, are a big thing in trauma recovery now with the EMDR and that kind of stuff. Is anybody, are you, I think you're onto something here. Is anybody really looking at the, the mechanisms associated with specific eye movements? Not that I know of. Let me, let me tell you something else I've seen is uh, my wife has a bunch of friends that are these intuitive psychics and whatnot. And I started just really just paying attention to what they were doing. Just like, what's yeah. going on here? And, and, uh, and they would all talk about intuition, intuition, you know, and I thought, all right, well, I, you know, that's kind of what you and I do, right? We try to attune intuitively to another person and open to the, you know, the, the con the experience of whatever comes, you know, and I noticed some of the good ones <laughs> had very unusual eye movements, very yeah. unusual. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. including rotatory nystagmus that was pronounced and a certain, you know, and usually up and out to the, I think the left, right. Uh, and I was thinking there's gotta be something in, in that it's sort of in terms of the, the access to in- intuitive mechanisms. What do you think? One thing that really struck me was watching Peter Levine work with clients. Mm. So I started going to any, any trainings and and they do client cases. And so I, I, I still go. In fact, I was just there at presented two cases to him in London when I was speaking at Oxford recently and to watch him and his eyes fascinated from me from the very beginning that he seemed to be able to, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever met him in person, but he has yeah. very unique eyes. <laughs> I, did not, I don't remember that, but I have met, I've sat next to him. Yes. Yeah. And, and his eyes can be piercing and yet soft at the same time. Uh. And, and they pick up on the slightest movements and details. And that was how I saw that he was intuitively attuning to people. Yes, yes. And noticing the subtle, I mean, subtle movements that a person would not even notice. Yes. The whole audience wouldn't even notice. And yet yes. his eyes, again, like we're, we're able to just pick all of that up. And I, and I found that interesting from the very moment, the first time that I saw him working with a client. That, that makes sense to me. I, I've often wondered if it, you know, when, when, when I've had sort of uncanny experiences in the room with patients, which I'm sure you've had now, um, it is, I just think it was, I, did I, did something it's, it's really about the facial facial musculature too. It's the tiniest movements around the eyes for me, particularly I notice, And I remember as a patient, I was picking up on that too. And I, and I felt bad for my therapist that, oh my God, this poor woman, I'm, I'm every, every microscopic movement of an eyebrow I'm, I'm picking up on. It's terrible. Uh, but I, I think we do that when we're opening ourselves to these experiences. And it makes sense in terms of the polyvagal theory and the socio-emotional exchange system, right? Tell people about so. that. And Talk about yeah, that what, a second. You what did, I noticed early on was how my own facial muscles felt different. When mm. I was in this place of the dorsal vagal shutdown mm. versus when I was ventral vagal or even sympathetic. Mm. And what I noticed was that my 
my, my muscles felt like they were sagging and I would look in the mirror and I would look very unhappy. And yet that's not how I felt. Mm. And I, and I looked cross, like I looked like I was disapproving and I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like, is this the message that I'm giving off to the world? Interesting. <laughs> and, and I think so, right? Like, so, yeah. and I wouldn't even notice it if I hadn't started paying attention to that. This is, I think what many people just call the resting bitch face, right? <laughs> like people walk around with this face that yes. scowls and they yeah. don't even realize it because their internal experience is, well, no, like my, my face is normal. I'm not scowling, but that's the effect that that dorsal vagal shutdown has on our facial expressions and our facial muscles. Yeah. And so then I noticed that when I was in ventral vagal, then my, there was just like this more natural smile. And there was just more of this natural, like softness around my eyes. There was a more aliveness around my eyes. And I became again, like fascinated, super curious about this, not needing to change it yet. Just trying to understand it. Mm-hmm. And then I took that to my patients and I, oh my goodness, like talking about the dorsal vagal shutdown and sympathetic, you know, going back and forth between those two during a detox and just noticing the difference in their facial muscles. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I started to be able to attune to someone, even as just, they were walking into my room mm-hmm. is looking at their face, looking at their speed of walking. What was their posture walking in? And that just there gave me so much information for where they were at that moment with their nervous system. And so what would be the best way to attune to them? If they're in sympathetic high energy, I've got to match that high energy to attune to that. But if they're in dorsal vagal shutdown, I've got to come in super soft because their system is just already in overwhelm. And I could overwhelm them just by trying to have a conversation with them. They're in shutdown. They don't want to have a conversation and everything feels hard, even down to the facial muscles for them to actually smile feels really, really hard. And so I noticed, of course, that in in my own process, that when I, when I knew that I was in dorsal vagal shutdown, still functioning, still going to work, still doing my day, I knew Dr. Drew that I had to force the smile because it wasn't going to be showing naturally that day. I had to, to force it for people to, to not get that message of I'm disapproving of you and I don't want to be here. <laughs> it's funny. A, a couple of things occurred to me. One is I, I remember when I was a kid, like fourth grade age, people always go, well, why aren't you smart? You look so, what, what are you so angry about? What are you so mad about? I was like, I, I, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan Harbinger show is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know, you know, people are always telling you, you got to listen to this podcast or that podcast, but I, I've been with Jordan a long time, uh, immediately noticed what an interesting dude he is himself. And of course he is engaging in deep conversation with fascinating guests, uh, something for everyone there. Uh, I've told you about the hostage negotiator from the FBI who gives you techniques on how to get people to like you and trust you. Cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle, made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. Apple named Jordan's show one of the best of 2018. It's aimed at making you better informed. Jordan's always focused on getting useful, practical insights out of the guest, and not pop psychology, but really deeper. And Jordan's had a crazy life himself. He speaks multiple languages, traveled the world, been abducted before. I enjoy the show. I think you will, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B is in boy, I-N is in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm recommending you to go to The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
And, and then so many of our patients in the detox and often even for a while after are in both sympathetic hyperstimulation and dorsal shutdown, right? Which is really mixed messages. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, it's challenging. Imagine how comfortable it is for them. But let's, I think you and I ought to have another conversation because we're barely getting into it. We're barely getting through this material. Before I wrap this up, though, would you give people a primer? You know, we've used some words that people may not understand in terms of the vagal nuclei and the dorsal and, you know, the postnatally developing parts of the vagus and sympathetic system. Give, give them a, like a three minute, five minute primer on what we're talking about from your perspective. Ooh, I love that. So where I'll go is talking about the neurodevelopment. And when we are developing in utero, we have our whole survival system developing so that the moment that we are born, we can survive life. If that does not develop and the brainstem area that has to develop, has to develop enough for us to be able to take our breath and be able to eat and our hearts to be like essential is the medulla, the lowest portion of the brainstem. That's actually where the vagus nerve comes out of. So the vagus nerve comes out of that lower brainstem area, the medulla, but as you say, it has different origins. And so I consider it like the same train track. It's still the same vagus nerve, but just which train station is the train coming out of? And that will depend on what message the rest of the body gets. And when we are first born, the only message really is one of survival, right? Because you've, you've got you've to be activated, aroused enough to, and fear to take that first deep breath. Because if you feel so safe and so calm, like you're not going to take the, the first deep breath. So it, the system is so designed for survival in a beautiful way. And because it's designed for survival, we do not have that capacity yet for self-regulation or self-soothing, self-calming, providing a sense of safety for ourselves yet. We depend on a sense of safety from our environment and specifically the people around us. And if you want to get even more specific, our mother, mm-hmm. like that is our sense of safety. If we don't get enough of what we need from her through what we call co-regulation. So her sharing her nervous system with the baby, ah, like we're going to always have this underlying sense of insecurity that I'm not safe in the world and I'm still in survival mode. As we develop, there are the different kind of stages of the brainstem developing on top of that. Next after that is the pons level of the brainstem. That actually helps us to connect with our body and to feel things like feel our hunger, feel thirst, feel when we need to go to the bathroom, feel heat, feel cold, know when I need to grab a sweater, know when I need to shed the sweater. Like these are all functions of our body that we need to be connected to. And that's developed through the pons. The pons is developed through the tummy time. And so how much time do we get on our tummy is the main contributing factor to that pons level development. There are certain movements that a baby will naturally do on their tummy that will help develop that pons level. And so we're seeing so many more people who are still stuck in that survival mode, right? They didn't get enough co-regulation from their mother or Dr. Drew, right? Like the, the their mother had a dysregulated nervous system mm-hmm. and that's all that she had to share with her baby. Yeah. And so they never experienced the regulation. And, and now they're adding on top of that, the fact that they have a hard time feeling their body. And like you said, they don't want to feel their body. 
their body has a lot of suffering, a lot of implicit memories of not feeling safe. So why would you want to feel that? Let's cut that off. And so then, I mean, it just starts to accumulate and accumulate, accumulate. But then, like you say, what should be developing during that time is this next level of the vagus nerve, which is the train coming from what's called the ventral nucleus. And that is our social engagement. But we're really only going to be able to move into that when we feel safe to engage. If we're still stuck in survival and some for some people, it's their, their basics. Like they don't feel like they even have the basics of regulation to even think about feeling safe to connect with another person. In fact, their experience has been that connection with another human being, like their mother was the furthest thing from being safe. Right. And so they have all of that memory in their body and that actually prevents them from moving into this connection and developing, I want to say like uh, strengthening that ventral vagus that would be moving them into a a place of health. I mean, we're just talking about health now because now these Mm -hmm. people, since they don't have that baseline, they're going to be developing all of the chronic health conditions, the cardiovascular problems, the autoimmune problems, the skin problems, the digestive problems, like this is the natural, the natural and predictable outcome of a person when their autonomic nervous system never really had that sense of safety and has needed to stay in survival. Have you run across Peter Fonagy's stuff and mentalizing theory? I have not. He, he, one of the reasons I like his stuff is he's sort of operationalized the socio emotional exchange system a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like he's got a bunch of observations about what the elements are of that exchange. Uh, and I, I'm sure you've done some of that stuff also, but it's because it just, it's just, it's interesting how many different fields are converging in the same place. Right. And uh, I'm just so glad you were there. Uh, and I could talk to you all day about this stuff. This, like I said, this is my jam. And, and I do think we had to have another conversation because we're just, we're just starting to develop the dorsal Vegas here. We got a lot more, long, long way to go. And we have not had any conversation about addiction or we've not, you know, we've not gone down. There's so many things you and I could talk about. So let's just stop here. Where should people go if they want to be a part of the workshop and why would they come? They would come if they really want to bring in more of this biology piece of the trauma work. And so maybe they've done a lot of the therapy pieces. Maybe they have an idea that their health, their health conditions, maybe they're just their health symptoms might be what's holding them back. I talk about their one's biology really becoming the ceiling effect for how far you can go in therapy or how fast you can go in therapy. And so that's why I call my work accelerating the trauma healing journey. Because as you say, when we converge all of these fields, and do it in a very intentional, strategic way that kind of honors the body and how trauma got stored in the first place, we're able to make so much more progress than what we were able to do decades ago when we when we didn't have all of these fields that we could bring together and yes. in such an intentional way. So yeah. they can find me at traumahealingaccelerated.com and I would encourage them to start with me on a foundational journey where we start laying in these pieces and working on the biology of trauma. Traumahealingaccelerated.com. And it's I, I would argue that just about everybody who, you know, who has felt they've needed to go to therapy and is in therapy could use this kind of work. And it's often left out. Uh, and and it's a, such a crucial piece of the story. 
So, Amy, thank you for your work. Thank you for spending some time with us today. And uh, I look forward to talk- talking to you again. Thank you so much, Dr. Drew. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. 